Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to talk about anime episodes 180 through 182, which will cover manga chapters 274 through 279. This set of episodes contains some of my favorite episodes in this entire arc, actually maybe even in the series, and easily one of the more influential episodes and chapters in my life personally, so it holds a decent amount of significance. But not only that, we get the long-awaited meeting of Mugiwara no Luffy versus God NL. And yeah, I cannot wait. But yeah, first, quick synopsis. Picking up from last episode, NL revives himself with his devil fruit powers and swiftly takes out the remaining survivors. With no choice, Nami allows herself to be taken. Now, Konis is now desperately trying to make it to Angel Isle to save everyone from NL's impending attack, while Luffy and Isa finally escape the snake. Upon their escape, they learn what NL has done and what he's planning to do next. And with Isa's help, Luffy rushes to beat down NL and rescue Nami. So as far as the differences go, these episodes are, for the most part, adapted pretty faithfully. We get a little bit more of the flashback when NL first came to Skypiea and overthrew Gunfall. And in the manga, it's also kind of split up, as opposed to the anime where this entire flashback is just one long sequence. In the manga, you see the first part with Gunfall and his Divine Squad uh, before Gunfall attacks NL in the present. Then you see Gunfall preparing to attack... But then we see the portion with NL taking over just moments before Gunfall actually gets zapped in the present. I know that's very confusing, but essentially the flashback starts off before Gunfall attacks and then it then shows Gunfall attacking. And then right before Gunfall actually gets zapped in the present, then he shows the part where NL actually shows up with his priests. Another detail that they changed in the anime is, so during the speech that Konis is making to convince everybody to evacuate the city, the little kid that actually throws the tomato at her in the anime, in the manga, the kid actually throws a rock at her. And so it's not the the tomato that's like running down her face. She's actually bleeding in the manga. And I'm assuming they changed this because they didn't want to make this scene as extreme, especially a kid throwing a rock at Konius kind of seems a little extreme. But I I get where, you know, I, I don't think it's really necessary to change that, to be honest. Like, it, it just makes sense that these people are just so ingrained in their beliefs that even the kids are, like, going to, to lash out at her. But I do understand why in the anime they changed that, because they don't want kids throwing rocks at other people, because... <laughs> You know, kids are impressionable. And so I think that's why they changed it for the anime. And also, for some reason, the kid in the anime is dark-haired, but in the manga, he's clearly blonde. So that change, I have no idea why that was altered, but (laughs) whatever. And then finally, in the anime, it actually adds kind of a nice touch. So when um, Pierre, Luffy, and Aisa all escape the snake... They all like see that their co- you know their friends are all down, and you see Isa reacting to Wiper, and you see Luffy reacting to Zoro and Robin, but in the anime they actually show Pierre's reaction to Gunfall, um, his body being on the floor, but in the in the manga you actually don't really get to see that, and so I thought that was a nice touch because whoever does Pierre's voice acting does a really good job of showing like shock, horror, and concern over Gunfall, even though all he's screaming is Pierre. So I, I really like that moment. 
But yeah, that's all I really found for differences. So let's just move into my thoughts here. So we continue from the epic cliffhanger from the last episode with the five-way stare down. And it's here we start to really understand just how crazy of a god complex NL actually has. It's not just that he's super powerful and therefore believes he should rule over everyone. He actually believes he's a real god and that he needs to return home to the heavens, whatever that means. Although, you know something that just occurred to me, and it's kind of embarrassing, I never actually put this together, but the reason for the number of five survivors specifically is that he wants four priests by his side, so his plan was to always have the four strongest people at his side, whether it be his original four priests or whoever was the strongest that actually survived his survival game. And I just noticed that. I I don't know why I never picked up on that until now. Anyways... Enel then reveals his ultimate goal of going to a place called the Fairyverth, believing this place to be the home of the gods and deems it that it is time for him to return there. This one moment really makes me wonder, what is Enel's backstory? We're only fed small bits and pieces throughout the series. Like later on in this episode, Captain McKinley talks about how Enel was from another sky island called Burka that he destroyed when he left it and, you know, to become the god of Skypiea. There will eventually be a cover story that goes a bit more into his history, but we'll explore that when we get there. But I will say, even for One Piece, it is easily one of the weirdest concepts in the entire series. And it doesn't necessarily really dive too much into uh, his past, per se, more so just like the history surrounding everything in the circumstances. I'm trying to be very vague as to not spoil this part. But yeah, it is it is very interesting. Like, I'm, I'm super curious as to, like, how and when he got the Gorogoro no Mi and how he became this unhinged and, like, where this belief came from. Like, this is never actually explored. You know, this part I'm going to spoil, but this part is never actually explored later on in the series, at least not yet, um, you know, a thousand chapters in. I don't... I We haven't yet to see what NL is really coming from. One other note here is in the Crunchyroll subs, which is the version that I'm watching, they translate the fairy verse as the endless verse for some reason, which to me makes no sense because, you know, of what the fairy verse actually is, which I won't spoil it here as it's not quite revealed yet, but you know that regular verse is just soil or ground, so naturally the thing NL is looking for is an actual substance of some sort, as, you know, so calling endless I feel doesn't make any sense in the context of what fairy birth actually turns out to be also why even unnecessarily translate this I mean even in Japanese he literally calls it fairy birth in English and so I don't understand why they felt the need to change this at all it just doesn't make any sense but however in, in addition to leaving for this fairy birth NL plans to destroy Skypea on his way out just like he did with his home island of Burka with that revelation that NL plans on returning all of Skypea back to the sea and that he's already killed all the Divine Squad members, Gunfall can no longer take it and attacks NL head-on, but of course gets taken out swiftly in a pretty brutal way as he blasts him with 20 million volt Vari straight through the head. I mean, Gunfall should be dead, but again, I'll reiterate like the last few episodes, he's most likely not because NL's not very good at killing people. Robin is then taken out as well, with NL becoming annoyed at her attempt to outsmart him to try to delay him. But despite how crazy NL seems, he's still incredibly sharp and smart as shown in this scene. And just as brutally, he zaps Robin straight through the head with electricity as well. Again, Robin should be dead, but she's a main character, so she's got plot armor. 
In the next scene, we see the beginnings of the Zoro Robin shippers all across the fandom begin. I'm pretty sure this is the moment, combined with their common pairings up up until now, cements you know a portion of the fandom who wants Zoro and Robin to be romantically paired, as he gently catches her before she hits the ground. Zoro's sort of old-fashioned sexism is still present as as well here, which I'll again reiterate here always seemed off to me. That's you know despite what his childhood best friend Queena was always fighting against, and the defining moment of his life was declaring to her that it shouldn't matter if she was a girl when he eventually beat her. You'd think from that point on he basically view women as equals in almost every respect but again with his interaction with Tashigi and now with Robin he seems to still have this mindset where women are just more frail and should be treated easier and I hope you know at least my hope is is that as the series goes on he starts to shed this way of thinking and that becomes one of his sort of character development points later on as the series goes but yeah we'll see Anywho, with Wiper and Zoro being the only two left standing, they both attack Enel. Wiper eventually manages to get near Enel and weakens him with Sea Stone that he magically has on him, and shockingly, pun intended, hits him with the Reject Dial, knocking Enel out unconscious and dealing a substantial amount of damage to him for the first time in this series so far, so, or maybe even ever. However, this small victory is very short-lived as NL somehow revives himself by defibrillating his own heart with his electrical powers. Not that one should try to apply too much real-life logic in its world, but especially when it comes to the magical fruits that give you superpowers, but I have a hard time understanding how this works. First, this brings up the debate as to are Logia Devil Fruits actively turned on or are they unconsciously passive abilities? Unfortunately, there seems to be many contradicting examples throughout the series, which in the grand scheme of things, I prefer that Oda actually flexes this element for the sake of a good story or a fun comedy, as he often does, but it is a little weird. Like, is NL's brain still active despite being unconscious, or is his ability just activating on instinct for survival? Like, this is something that I never really got. Like, because there's that one scene that everyone always points to, about how Luffy somehow managed to gomu gomu no rocket smoker back in Alabasta in the back. and But every other time, most Logia fruit users seem to get attacked, even when they don't know that the attack is coming, but it goes right through them. And so there is that debate as to like, how do Logia fruits actually work? But, you know, that's a debate for another time. I personally have always used the latter to explain it in my head for this scene. Another nitpick that obviously wouldn't work for the story is that there are like two ways NL could have been killed here. Like A, while NL is trying to revive himself, Zoro could have easily just run up to him and cut his head off or something. Also, Wiper could literally just stand closer to NL with his sea stone and prevent him from using his powers. This seems like a big oversight in storytelling, but obviously then we wouldn't have a story. So again, we're just going to let that slide. (laughs) But with the reject dial finally taking its toll on Wiper's body as he's unable to even stay standing, NL promptly takes him out and Zoro, leaving only Nami left. I do want to mention that we get a pretty cool moment where a half-unconscious Wiper gets back up to continue resisting NL and stand up for his home. And I think this is the first time where I've actually begun to kind of like Wiper. So this was a really cool moment to see. I kind of wanted to take a moment to kind of talk about NL. Like, one of the great things about NL is he conveys just how terrifying and insurmountable it is to go up against a Devil Fruit user. 
Like we've had a taste of that with Crocodile. And while Ace and Smoker also have Logia Fruits, they're not built up to be these like powers that are meant to be feared. But with NL, he displays what kind, you know, what kind of like unbridled raw power these fruits possess. And NL's usage of his powers is just absolutely overwhelming. He just one-shots everyone without them even standing a chance, which makes for a pretty insane villain. You know, so like what NL actually lacks in any sort of personal connection or story or development with our heroes, he makes up for in just sheer power and threat factor, which still makes him a fun villain to watch, albeit not quite as satisfying as maybe like Arlong or Crocodile who have these like really intense relationships with our heroes. But I'm not going to lie, it is pretty fun to watch NL. But faced with that insurmountable power, Nami now having no choice agrees to go with NL for the time being in order to survive. NL then takes Nami to his secret base in the mountains and it's here that NL reveals what he's had the Divine Squad doing this whole time and what he did with all that gold that was found in Shandara. It all went to building a massive flying arc called the Ark Maxim which is also on point with the religious and godly theming around NL but this time drawing from Christianity and Noah's Ark obviously. But instead of saving animals and taking them to a cleansed, you know, quote-unquote earth, NL wants to use it to take his loyal thugs to safety while he forsakes the innocent people of Skypea. And this thing is as ostentatious as they come. The size of this thing is huge, and then it seems like half the gold was just used for decorative purposes with that front face on the top. So, yeah, this thing is absurd and fits every bit of NL's god complex. Back in Chandra, Luffy and Isa finally make it to the head of the snake, and this scene is always funny to me as they're in its eyes and lift its eyelids, and you know, from inside, they walk around in it like I'm pretty sure that's not how eyes work, but finally they make it out, and Luffy's exuberant excitement over finally escaping the snake is just so over the top that it's it's so funny. But it's quickly interrupted as he discovers the body of Zoro downed on the ground from a distance. This scene always kind of hits a little hard seeing each one of them seeing their respective loved ones all hurt. It's especially effective with Luffy genuinely shocked and confused as to how even Zoro was defeated, showing just how much faith he has in Zoro. And I always really liked learning that about Luffy here. It's also really sad seeing Pierre concerned over Gunfall's body but Robin somehow manages to regain consciousness here and explains to Luffy the situation. And with Isa telling them that she can take him straight to Enel with her mantra. And whoo, man, this is awesome. Like, this is it. The music starts to swell here as Luffy is all business mode as he's pissed. And, you know, because Enel's hurt two of his nakama already and abducted another one. And the way he just firmly directs Isa to take him there is so freaking spine-chillingly epic like we we're finally gonna get to see luffy go up against god nl and yeah i can't wait like this when you get to this point in the episode because it's, it caps off the end of that episode i think 180 it just yeah you just be like oh my god and watching this from week to week was <laughs> was annoying for sure even though i knew what was going to happen in the manga already it's like you wanted to see these next few moments so badly that it just sucked having to end the episode there. But before we can get to that epic showdown, we get back to the Angel Isle and Konis who's trying to make it to the city to warn everyone of NL's impending attack. But in order to make it in the city, she needs to get past the White Berets. 
And I have to say, Cornish is a little unbelievably skilled here at riding the waiver as she somehow manages to avoid a barrage of attacks from highly trained soldiers. But it's over so quick that you don't really notice it until you rewatch this scene. But then Captain McKinley, <laughs> poor guy, takes a waiver wheel to the face again in the exact same way he took one from Nami at the beginning of the arc. And I love how this is almost like a shot for shot, like exact same like angles too in the way he gets that wheel to the face. McCornish then finally gets everyone's attention so that she can warn them about Enel's attack, but none of them will believe her. Seeing that none of them will believe her unless she has some drastic proof, she decides the only way to prove it is to actually show them. So she does something incredibly brave here as she decides to provoke Enel by claiming that she doesn't accept him as a god, but then nothing happens. However, she didn't know that at the time and she was betting her life to try and save these people just like her father did. And it sort of works, you know, they somehow are a little less apprehensive towards her. But even after this, they still don't fully believe that Enel would ever hurt them as they're all still in denial. But at least they're listening now. And you know the sad thing about this moment though is that it's kind of all too real in real life and even with people around me personally. You know, how these people are willing to sit there waiting for a miracle when they themselves can help themselves and each other. You see and hear about it so often about people who sit and pray for a solution or help, you know, for help to come from some sort of divine powers when they could have easily just done something about it themselves. You know, I'm personally not a religious person, and I do think religion can be a source of, you know, for good when it comes to things like community building and finding strength in difficult times and just sort of building faith, but there are some really dark and toxic aspects about it too. And I would say that this one aspect is one of them, you know, having an over-reliance on a higher power when they themselves can work to solve the problem. You know, and I'm not here to admonish or judge anyone who does follow, a, you know, a religion, but but yeah, I love Cornice's speech here about how she says, what's the point in waiting for a miracle and turning a blind eye to the reality of what actually is happening and that people should do what they can when they can do it and flipping this whole you know learned helplessness victim mentality on its head for these people they need to act and save themselves instead of waiting for some divine power to do it for them this message has always rung so hugely in my life even taking you know just taking all the religious context out of this this message can be applied to just life in general i feel like and I know for me growing up, it was always so easy to play the victim and blame the world for my problems. Like, why did I have to be born so ugly and fat? Why am I such a failure at everything? Why don't people ever respect me? I just kind of like sat there stewing in my own pity for, you know, waiting for something magically to improve in my life. But then I started reading One Piece and then read this very moment and something just kind of flipped in my head. It's like, yeah, this sucks, but I can't just wait for something to happen for me. I need to make that change happen, and even if I don't have the power or resources to make all of my problems go away, I can at least take the necessary actions to do what little I can to make the situation better. And that's precisely what I did. I just took small steps towards bettering myself and the situation around me, and just kind of kept chugging away at it. Is it easy? Hell no. It sometimes feels downright pointless, but as long as you're even taking only one step forward a day, at least you took one step because even if it takes you 10 years to do it and you only take one step a year, that's still 10 steps better than where you were. And, you know, that mentality has kind of persisted 
with me in my entire life. You know, anytime I've come across a challenge or a deficiency in my life, and yeah, it's it's this mentality has made it so that I can you know just keep pushing forward. And One Piece was a huge factor in me coming to that realization. You know, I can confidently say that this moment when I read this the first time changed my life in the most positive way forever. Like I can actually point, pinpoint this moment being what you know what changed my life in a positive way. Because I think, yeah, without this, you know, maybe my life still would have been better, but I don't think it would have happened sooner. And, you know, since then, I've been able to achieve so many things that I honestly didn't think I could. And I'm by no means rich or successful right now or anything like that, but it has allowed me to live a life that's happy and one that's very appreciative of what I have and also has given me the tool to navigate many difficult challenges in life. Anyways, sorry for the long personal anecdote, but I just wanted to share that because of just how influential this moment was for me. Getting back to the story, though, this speech rouses the citizens of Angel Isle to act as well. And as they all decide that they need to evacuate to the Cloud End, finally. Then there's this really great scene where a few of the family members of the Divine Squad subordinates begin asking Konis about their whereabouts and safety. But Konis is at a loss for words because the truth is... They're most likely dead or about to be. But then just, you know, just at that very moment, Captain McKinley comes to her aid and tells them that the White Berets will personally check up on them and that everyone should just concentrate on evacuating, knowing full well himself what kind of man NL is working for having worked for him all these years. And it's nice to see this sort of redemption moment for Captain McKinley as he reveals his true colors as an just an officer trying to do the right thing, although very overzealously. But at heart, he has the safety of his citizens in mind and is, you know, only antagonistic because of the will of Enel was directing him. This moment really made me do a 180 on this character. And it made me really love, you know, his character, just like Konis, you know, her opinion changes of him as well here. But as good as those moments were, we haven't gotten to anything yet as the most delicious moment of Skypea as Luffy, Isa, and Pierre finally make it to NL and Nami at the Arc Maxim. And oh man, this is like peak shonen anime hype right here. Like Luffy's triumphant theme starts to play here as he takes a huge breath and yells, Are you the guy they call NL? And this combined with Nami getting all relieved and excited that Luffy has arrived with all of Oda's trademark don 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 it's just like goosebump inducing chills like oh my god this moment is so cool i mean not many things beat these types of moments in fiction to be honest like you only really get these in comic books and you know it's really awesome when they happen but yeah we get the moment we've all been waiting for luffy charges at nl and he unleashes the L Thor attack, which when fired horizontally literally looks like Kamehameha. But the way this moment is built up is so awesome, as up till now we've seen just how destructive El Thor is, along with the size and scale of this attack, while we see Aisa and Nami's terror and just despair, as Luffy just seemingly took this thing at point blank range, but then he comes out of it with a blank stare like nothing just happened. It's so awesome and hilarious. And as a side note, I have to make this face where I suck my lips in and just kind of stare blankly to the side when I'm in an uncomfortable situation and don't really have words. I like using this face for some reason. But anyways, 
Anno thinks that Luffy had dodged the attack, but we all know what's going on here. As Luffy just continues to tank one attack after another, it dawns on Nami finally what we all figured out a while ago. It, and it doesn't take NL too much longer to figure it out as well, that Luffy is completely immune to lightning and electricity, and thus a famous internet meme was born. The famous shocked NL Spongebob face. <laughs> but even a, you know several decades before this scene ever became a meme, it was absolutely magical. As you'd never expect someone that high and mighty and one that refers to himself as a god would ever make such an unsightly face but that's precisely why this moment is so fucking amazing. Like, it's hard to even put into words how incredible this moment is. Just all the emotions running through your head, like the anticipation, the joy, the excitement, the vindication, the humor and suspense. Like, you're just feeling all of them at the same time here. And I also love how this entire part is drawn in the manga as, you know, Oda devotes so many of these big moments, like just full pages or double page spreads to all these iconic shots like Luffy challenging NL and then later as Luffy standing over NL towards the end of these episodes. But the best is still easily when he uses an entire full page to do an intense close-up on NL's agape shocked face. Like the whole meme face is just a big ass page in the manga. It's it's It looks so good. If you ever get a chance to see this in the manga, like it's kind of it's kind of crazy how big this is. It's literally just his face on one huge page. And I think that's something that's lost in anime because all the frames are the same. So like you don't really get a sense of like significance based on how much of the page Oda dedicates to a moment. And so in the anime, all of that stuff is just equal for for the lack of a better word. And so in the manga, you kind of get a sense of just like what Oda actually wants you to pay attention to. And this, the fact that it was just Enel's face on one big ass page is just crazy. And it's so funny. And then the cherry on top, while Enel is still in denial, you hear Luffy just full on charging from off screen and lands one of the most satisfying blows right in Enel's gut. And you know, it's like, see Toy, now this is how you do one of these. They convey the impact and damage of this blow so well. It's like, why can't they show this level of quality and attention to detail in all their action scenes? Like, I absolutely love this hit. It actually looks devastating from the animation, the sound design, and the reaction. It all looks so good. Like, how he just, Luffy just shows up from, you know, screen right and just, boom, right in his gut. And then just seeing NL spit up blood and then slow-mo into his reaction and then it just speeds up and he just gets slammed to the other side of the boat it's so good and that's how it should be the first hit landed on on a major villain is always one of the more satisfying things and again that's why i hated that first hit on crocodile how bad it was so i'm glad they learned from their mistakes this time but yeah we cap it off with nami telling us how this time luffy has the upper hand Unlike his fight with Crocodile, Luffy himself is the weakness. And so this now creates an interesting dynamic of how is this fight actually going to play out with Luffy seemingly having the upper hand this time around as he towers over a collapsed Enel staring down at him. And yeah, this is the first time we've seen Enel in such a compromised position. Like, yes, he got hit by the rejectile, but he was still pretty much in control. This time, Luffy is just like 
towering over him. And again, in the manga, this show, this moment is shown in a double page spread, and it looks freaking crazy cool. But yeah, that brings those episodes to an end. But speaking of endings, we actually get a new ending theme here.、Um, so with episode eight one eighty two. We get a new ending theme, and if you listen to my recent endings ranking podcast, you know my feelings on this song. But I'll just reiterate it here for those that haven't listened to that yet. So yeah, we get "Skito Tayo," or translated as "Moon and Sun," performed by Sheila, which is the twelfth ending theme. And yeah, I, as I mentioned, I used to have this in my like romantic songs playlist, and it's not actually a romantic song, which is really silly, but it sounds romantic. But yeah, this is another really beautiful song, and at this point in the series, I be you know because I've become attached so so much to the story and characters that I'm a sucker for these like recap type montages that are shown in the animation of this ending theme, and in this one we see all the past important people in the crew's life looking up at the same moon, ending with the Straw Hats all looking up at the moon as well, signifying that they're all still connected and supporting them from a distance. And you know, we even get Gaimon, who you know hasn't even shown up in the series in forever, since he was actually in that one episode. But you know, what's equally just as sad here is when you realize who's missing, and you don't actually see anyone for Robin, as seemingly everyone from her past is gone, which kind of stands to reason that she's been on the run since she was a little kid. So you know, kind of highlighting just how alone she is. It's kind of sad at the same time. I personally really like this song as I ranked it pretty high, and yeah, the song itself is really beautiful and performed really well. The song is about when you're lost and depressed, just look up at the sky and the moon, and if they follow the light, they'll eventually make it out of the darkness. And yeah, that's a very cliche, you know, you know, theme, but it works. And I, I really enjoyed this song, and it's one that I actually listen to fairly regularly still. But yeah, with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. But it's definitely been a quite a drawn out process of getting Luffy to finally face off against Eno. But damn, it is so worth the wait. As this introductory fight was freaking awesome and so satisfying. You know, it's like I can't wait to dive into the rest of the fight with with everybody in the coming podcasts. But that may have to wait a little bit because next. Podcast. I am taking a slight detour because my schedule is a little busy, and also I happen to have gotten a chance to see One Piece film Strong World in theaters. So yeah, I'm gonna actually do a review of that to sort of offset my busy schedule. So I apologize that we keep interrupting the rewatches, but hopefully you enjoy the, my review of Strong World. But yeah. If you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes, or see some pictures of my manga collection.、Uh, just a small spoiler section today.、Um, just a couple things I wanted to talk about. But yeah, if you don't want to listen to that, I just want to say thanks for listening to my podcast, and I hope to see you on the next one. Bye. Okay, so this episode's already running pretty long, so I'm gonna keep this really short.、Um, I think the main thing that I wanted to talk about was Anel himself, and like I mentioned, we don't really learn much about Anel's past. And while we do get his cover story, kind of detailing what happened to him, and in the cover story, it kind of goes over a little bit of the history of Skypians, Shandians, and you know, 
burqa itself. And I'm not going to get too much into it because obviously I'm going to dedicate an entire podcast episode to NL's cover story when it comes around. But yeah, it's weird that we never actually get to see like what more, you know, more about NL himself. Like that's one thing I've always been kind of curious about. Like, again, like I mentioned in the in the spoiler free section, you know, it's like, where did he come from? Why does he do what he does? How did he get his powers? You know, what made him who he is? Like, we just don't know anything about NL, to be quite honest. And it's not like something that we actually need, per se, but it's just like, he's such a weird character. You just kind of want to know more about him. And then similarly, it's interesting how, you know, retroactively looking at this moment, that uh, that NL is actually, yeah, he is like one of the most powerful Devil Fruit users in the series, even even now in like episode, you know, 1031 or 1032 wherever we are it's crazy how strong he is but at the same time he's never had to run into anyone who uses hockey or has anyone you know ever laid a finger on him because of that and it's just interesting to see what would have happened had nl been on earth like in the sea because he would have easily been put in his place by anyone who could use armament hockey and so, yeah, it's really weird to see that. And it's funny how it's like the even even now, it still makes sense why no one has ever touched it all because not many people come to Skypea. There's no rubber. And yeah, the, the sort of explanation for why NL is NL has never actually been broken, even through all these different developments. But yeah, I don't know. It's just I always found NL's story a little a little strange and uh, very curious about it but yeah that's just kind of like me rambling about no anyways that's pretty much all i wanted to talk about and yeah i'll see you on the next episode bye <laughs>